Thank you. You may be seated. Nice to see so many of you. Thank you for playing the music for us. See familiar faces again. Greetings from Orlando, Florida, where Mickey Mouse still lives, and the weather is fine. (laughs) Just came from the Bahamas and had a wonderful gospel effort in the Bahamas. As we saw 16 professions of salvation last week, just amazing how the Lord has worked. This is our ministry in the summer, a gospel ministry as we seek to travel and present Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and ascended in glory. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, entitles our subject this morning, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the business of Jesus Christ. He was totally focused upon his mission to come and to seek that which was lost. There's a fascinating modern parable that was written in the Presbyterian Journal about how easy it is to lose this passion for souls. For this is the Christian's main calling as we leave this building and go into the world around us, that we may may be lights in this world. But, you know, we get so sidetracked. We've had plenty of excuses. We have had COVID. Boy, that was a huge sidetrack, wasn't it? And we've had elections. That was another huge sidetrack, sorry to say. And uh, so many other things enter into our personal lives that sidetrack us from our main purpose in life. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I call you to become what? Fishers of men. And that's why the Lord Jesus came. He came to be fishers of men. He trained his disciples for that very purpose. He trained them to be evangelists. That was his ministry to them. And that was his heart's desire. There was a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred. And there was once a very crude little life-saving station on that coast. The building was just a hut There was only one boat, and a few devoted members kept a constant vigilance over the sea. They had no thoughts for themselves and their comfort and their own personal safety, but they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost, and many souls were rescued in that little life-saving station. And it became well-known, famous in that area. Some of those who were saved and various others from the surrounding area wanted to assist in this effort and give other time and money and efforts. New boats were bought. New crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-giving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge from those saved at sea. So they replaced the emergency cots 
and beds and put in better furniture and they enlarged the building. Well, now it became a popular meeting place for the members. And they decorated this place beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club to meet and socialize with one another. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea and putting their own lives in jeopardy. So what did they do? But they hired life-saving crews to go out in their place. Still, the motif was there, you know. They had the rescue boats. Uh, they had their same life-saving mission. It's just that they weren't involved in it themselves. About this time, there was a large ship that was wrecked off the coast, and their hired crews went out and rescued many people, and they brought in a lot of people that were dirty and sick, and they brought them right into their life-saving club surroundings. I mean, this beautiful new club was considerably messed up with all these dirty people in there. So the property committee decided they needed a better plan of action. They got together, and they decided they would build a shower outside the club so that when the victims came in from the shipwrecks, they could be cleaned up before they came into the clubhouse, you know. Well, the very next time they had a membership meeting, they decided they had to do something a little bit better than that, they said that most of the members agreed that they really wanted to stop this life-saving ministry that they had because it was unpleasant and it was a hindrance to their normal social life of their club. So they says, we're going to end it. Well, not everybody agreed, you know. I don't know if you ever find a time when everybody agrees on everything. And so there was dissension. And the members that did not want to stop this decided they would leave and they would start another life-giving, saving station. And so they did. Well, they did well at first. Uh, they were out saving the shipwrecks, people, victims, so forth. Um, but you know what? Same thing happened to them. They had to enlarge their building and soon they had a nice social club and Soon the membership decided, well, they didn't want to continue this life-giving ministry. Um, they just wanted a social club. And so there was a faction that split off, and they went down the road and started another life-giving mission. And, you know, this repeated itself. If you go to that coast today, the journal says, you will find a number of social clubs on the coast. But guess what? There is no life-saving mission. Oh, there's still shipwrecks. But there's nobody saving people anymore. Nobody saving people. Sad, but it's pretty clear, isn't it? The focus, the purpose of this modern parable. It's very easy to get engrossed in our own comfort zone and to enjoy that and to become apathetic towards the needs that surround us. Jeremiah the prophet was not like this. Jeremiah, as I read from his book, said that, Oh, that my head 
were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Here is a prophet of God who complained, complained that he did not have enough tears to weep, not enough tears to carry the sorrow that he felt in his heart for those who were lost. We don't identify too much with Jeremiah the prophet. I mean, when's the last time you weep for a soul? Can you ever remember weeping for a soul that was lost? We just don't go there. The Lord Jesus wasn't like that at all. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why was he filled with grief? He was a man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. John Stuart Blackie wrote, The early church worked by a fervent moral contagion, not by persuasion of cool argument. I think that's a good point. The passion for souls, for the lost, that is what makes a church powerful. Not the preoccupation with its own comfort. No, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. It's nice to be seated in a pew that's uh, nice to your seat and to your back. Nothing wrong with that. We even do better at home. We're not downing that at all. What we're saying is that somehow many of us, and I include myself, by the way, when I'm preaching, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at me. I've got so much to learn when it comes to the subject. We've lost our passion for souls. It's hard for us to relate to this kind of passion. A preacher by the name of Robert Murray McChain was one of Scotland's greatest preachers who died, by the way, at age 29. Cortland Myers says about him, everywhere he stepped, Scotland shook. Moreover, he opened his mouth, and a spiritual force swept in every direction. Thousands followed him to the feet of Christ. A traveler was eager to relate to this history, and so he traveled to Scotland, especially to the Scottish town where his church was found. And there was an old gray-haired sexton who agreed to take him through the church. And as he led the way into McChain's uh, study, he says, go ahead, sit in his chair. Well, the traveler hesitated. But then he said he'd do it. He sat in the chair. And on the table before him was the open Bible and the sexton said, drop your head in the book and weep. That's what our minister always did before he preached. Then led the visitor to the pulpit before it was the open Bible. And he says, stand there, drop your head into your hands and let the tears flow. That's the way our minister always did it before 
he began his speaking. John Stott wrote in a recent book, There are many popular preachers today, but there are few powerful preachers. Why? Why? Where do we go for a model? Who do we look at? I would say, let's go to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to him and fall at his feet, we will see startling things about his life and his ministry. Yes, the Lord Jesus is that perfect model for us to follow. You see in him a heart for the lost. His ministry was focused on evangelism. John MacArthur mentioned a number of passages in the New Testament that illustrate this, and I would like to look at them with you. We'll use the PowerPoint, for you'll be turning to many passages otherwise, and I think we can see them on the screen quite well. We read, first of all, looking at his public ministry, As he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, remember John the Baptist was before him. And it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And what did he come to do? It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Same message as John the Baptist. This is what John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ took up the baton, and he echoed John the Baptist's words as he began his public ministry. Repent, he turned to the people, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, this was his preaching ministry. He preached the kingdom's nearness. He preached that men must enter into it by provision that God would make. Yes, he was called to a saving, seeking message to individuals. This is how he preached. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read, Jesus was going about all the cities, the villages. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, and how to enter. He was giving validity to his message through his healing ministry. But many times his healing ministry overshadowed his message And that bothered him greatly, for it was the message that was important. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He was such a compassionate evangelist who saw lost people as distressed and downcast and shepherdless, 
whose passion not only caused him to be an evangelist, but caused him to ask his disciples to pray that God would raise up many evangelists. In chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 28, we continue to read uh, about this very thing. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden. He was talking directly to the Jews who were carrying around an absolute unbearable load, a load of guilt, a load of sin, a load of traditions, legalism, works under which they were crushed and unable to attain the peace of soul. Come to me, Jesus said to them, you who are weary and heavy laden with all this religious baggage you're carrying, he says, and I'll give you rest. That was a call to salvation. Yes, the evangelist said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm gentle and humble of heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. There was a compassion, a tenderness in his evangelism. In the sixth chapter of John, the Lord again was seeking to save the lost. In verse 29, he says to the crowd of people around him who had experienced the great miracle of feeding that he had just finished the day before providing bread and fish in such a creative manner, creating this out of nothing. There he says to them in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It was an evangelist call. It was a call for salvation, a call for faith. This is why I do this, that you might believe in me, he says to them. Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, Is it not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven? It is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. He's calling them to salvation publicly in his preaching. In chapter 7, verse 37, we also read, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Oh, this was the day of the great feast. The priests, the priests had poured a great pitcher of water, pouring the water out of the pitcher. It was in honor of how that God had met their needs for water in the wilderness. And the Lord Jesus took advantage of that situation he found himself in. How that God had provided water for them in their time of great need. And Jesus says to the multitudes there, If any man is thirsty, here's the priest pouring out that water, Come to me, and I will give you water that will never make you thirsty again. For his inner being shall flow rivers of living water. He spoke of the Holy Spirit. Oh, he was calling men to himself. In chapter 8, again there was a celebration. The candelabra had just been used to celebrate God leading the children of Israel in the wilderness, a cloud, a pillar by day, and a pillar of fire by night. The candelabra had just gone out. It was to be lit for 
One week plus one day. Eight days it had been lit. And now it was gone out. And the Lord Jesus walked into the court of the woman. And he says, the candelabra is dark. But he says, I am the light of the world. You listening, folks? He's talking to them. He's telling them, listen to me. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he turns that moment into an evangelistic uh, meeting, a meeting where he was calling people to come to him, the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says again, turning a moment to himself, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, if you're going to come into the kingdom, you have to come in through me. All others are thieves and robbers. True sheep don't hear them, but I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He was in a great saving work. He was an evangelist. I am the good shepherd, he called out to the people. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Can you hear him saying those words? Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. He was always evangelizing. He say, it sounds like he had a one-track mind. I mean, Christ doesn't expect us to be like that, does he? Does he? Chapter 11, verse 25. Is that a funeral? Lazarus. And he says at the funeral... I am the resurrection and the life. Here he goes again. Here he goes again. This is it. We know where he's going. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He was very pointed. Though he was speaking publicly, he was very pointed individually. Oh, he was evangelistic. Calling people to come to him, to repent of their sins, to believe in him. Oh, he said to the people around him, drop the load of works. I will give you rest from that. Take up my easy yoke. He says, turn from darkness to light. I'm the light that will never go out. And he says... I am the water that will quench your desire for eternal life. Oh, yes, I will satisfy you. And then he says, turn from the fear of death to the hope of the resurrection of eternal life by believing in me. Yes, he truly came to seek and to save that which is lost. The Apostle John says this, if we abide in him, we ought to walk the way he walked. How did he walk through this world? He walked through the world as an evangelist, telling other people of salvation that was obtainable. Not only was it in his way of preaching, and you say, well, I can't preach like the Lord Jesus, but it was in his way of personal interaction. Personal evangelism. Let's go there. Remember, 
he won his disciples to begin with. We might say, one by one. He brought Philip to salvation in John chapter 1. In Luke chapter 5, he brought Matthew to salvation. Others as well, individually, one to one. Then in John chapter 4, we read of the Samaritan woman, the woman he met at the well. And this woman went into the town and says, He told me all things about myself. Is not this the Messiah? He won that woman to salvation. Just asking about water. Can you give me a drink? He turned it into the evangelism of her soul. Ah, imagine that. Going to a restaurant and saying, uh, Could I have a glass of water, please? But with a purpose. You know, I can offer you water that will never make you thirsty again. Oh, really? Never heard of that kind of water. There's an open door. He had a purpose in everything he did individually. And then there was that little Jew. You remember him, don't you? He's a guy who knew how to climb trees. You know why he climbed trees? Because he was a little Jew. And he wanted to see the Lord Jesus. And he couldn't see the Lord Jesus because he was a little Jew. And so up the tree he went. Amazing, and the Lord stopped right under that tree. Huh, it's like, you can't hide from me. You can't camouflage yourself, Zacchaeus. And he looked up. And he says, come on down, Zacchaeus, where I'm going to your house today. He invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. I mean, isn't that amazing? And that day, salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. This is the way the Lord was. You getting an idea how the Lord wants us to be? Unashamedly, yes, here we go, that same city. Uh, what city was Zacchaeus? You know his address? What this city did he live in? Jericho. Who else lived in Jericho? Oh, Lord was walking down the street, you know, and somebody started calling his name. Who was he? And he wouldn't be quiet about it. He's quite obvious. Bartimaeus, the blind man. Have mercy on my soul. Have mercy on my sight. He called out to the Lord Jesus. Wonderful story. How he led that man to the Lord. Through the healing of his eyes, he brought him to salvation. The light came into his soul, not just his eyes. Then there was the manic of Gadara. Remember that? Talk about personal evangelism. That guy needed it. I mean, he was naked. He was running around in tombs. cutting. He was a cutter, you know. Cutting himself to alleviate his mental anguish and pain. He would cut himself. They're called cutters. And what happened when Jesus came to him? <laughs> what happened to him? When Jesus left... He was clothed. He was in his right mind, and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Personal evangelism to people who needed it. And then there was that incredible event in John chapter 3. Yes, he brought a leading Jewish teacher by the name of Nicodemus 
to understand the truth of the gospel. That which is of the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit, he said to them. And Nicodemus obviously believed the message that night. Or soon after, because he was the one who took care of the body of the Lord Jesus, a secret disciple. Oh, guess what? Probably the most glorious event in all of the Lord's life when he was on the cross. Even in his death, what was he doing? I've known men, ladies, gone before me, that as they were dying on a hospital bed, they led people to the Lord. That's what our life's all about, folks. That's why we're here. You see, that's what the Lord Jesus did. Dramatic crucifixion. But the Lord was always the evangelist. Remember me. Remember me. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today. Saved his soul there on that cross. This was the ministry. This was the compassion of the heart of Jesus. We see it in his personal life. We see it in his public teaching. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? I want you to understand something. This is so important. Luke chapter 15, we have the three lost parables. Why is that in our Bible? Just nice stories to entertain us? No, the Lord Jesus told those parables with a very succinct purpose. He wanted us to understand the heart of his Father. That's why he gave us those parables. Luke chapter 15 You remember that very first parable that the Lord Jesus told? The Torah told the story of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep but lost one. Yes. And he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds him? And when he has found him, he lays him on the shoulder And he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. Who's the shepherd here? Many times we think it's the Lord Jesus. Oh, no, no. It's his father. It's his father. A little story that helps us to understand his father's heart. Oh, yeah. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Yes, he says, come and rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Oh, this is amazing. He tells another story of this woman, this woman who lost her coin. And she searches her house and tries to find. She lights a lamp, the Lord says. She sweeps the house in the corner. She diligently is looking. What is she looking for? That one lost coin And what happens when she finds that lost coin? She says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. Who is this woman represent? The father. The father. Yes, come 
and will rejoice, for I have found my coin. Then he tells the third story. The prodigal son. Well, the story tells of this man having two sons. The prodigal son leaves home and lives wild, sows his his wild oats. But he decides when he comes to his right mind that he should go back to his father. And when he does, the father says, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill him, let us eat, let us eat and be what? Mary! Why? For the son of mine was dead. He's come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. So what's this chapter all about? What are these stories all about? It's about rejoicing. Finding that which was lost and rejoicing over the one that has been found. It's not about finding lost things. Oh yes, you find a lost sheep, you find a lost coin, you find a lost son. But what happens when that one is found? The father runs to him. Oh, he's so excited. You want to get heaven excited? Find something that's lost so he can be found. Who's leading the party? Who's the father of the lost son? Who's the father of the prodigal Jesus? No, it's the father. It's the Father. You see, Jesus got this from his Father. Jesus has the heart of his Father. It's not Christ who is, has this individually, absolutely his own territory. No, he gets it from his Father. It's God the Father that's excited about this. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. (laughs) You want to get the Father really excited? Find somebody who's lost and see him saved. Conversion, salvation. The coin, verse 10, 15, chapter 15, verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in heaven In the presence of the angels of God, it says, over one sinner. Where is this joy coming from? The angels? No. The angels love to look into things concerning salvation, but this joy isn't coming from the angels. It's in heaven. It comes from the Father. Follow me, said Jesus. I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to show you what really counts in life. Yes, Lord Jesus says, I give you the Holy Spirit. Why did he give us the Holy Spirit? This is important. Because you can't do this without the Holy Spirit. He came so you could be witnesses. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the world, he gave the Holy Spirit so we would have power in our witnessing. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, one of the main purposes that we might evangelize. I close with this story. John Harper was called to be pastor of the Moody Bible Church in the early 1900s. He went down with a Titanic. W.B. Riley relates the death of John Harper on that ship. As the ship struck the iceberg and started to sink, 
John Harper was on the deck. He was leaning against the railing, and he was pleading with a young man to come to Christ. Four years after the event took place, there was a meeting in Hamilton, Canada. A young Scotsman rose. He says, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a piece of wood that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreckage near me. He said to me when he was in the water, Man, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He told me, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away. But strange to say, as he related the story that night, he said, the waves brought him back to me. And again, John Harper looked into my eyes and asked me, are you saved yet? And he says, no, I can honestly say I'm not saved yet. And John Harper looked at me and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Shortly after, he says, I saw him go under the water. And there, that night alone, with two miles of water under my feet, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert, faithful to the end. The passion, the passion for the loss. If you're here tonight, and you're lost this morning, this afternoon. You're lost. Will you turn to the Lord Jesus? Be saved from your sin for all eternity. Come to the light. Come to the water. Come to the one who will take care of your soul for all eternity. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Oh, you say, I can't live that life. His yoke is easy. He'll make it possible. Lean on him. He will save your soul. And for those of you that have this light in your heart, may God revive you. May you understand why we have Vacation Bible School. May you understand why we go out into this world because that waitress that's waiting on me has a soul. There's a reason for these things. May we not lose that passion. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day for your word. We come back to it. And we find it is food for our souls. We know why we're here. Lord Jesus, right now by thy Holy Spirit, we pray earnestly for perhaps a soul this morning who has never turned to Christ, never repented of their sin, never turned from their sin and embraced Calvary for that blood was shed for their sin. May they even now, from the depths of their soul, say, Lord Jesus, 
I believe you died for me, for my sin. Oh, may you cleanse me, make me whole. Thank you for your death, for my sin. Thank you for your punishment, for my punishment. You took my place. I believe in you. I trust in you. Your head bowed, your eyes closed. If this morning, if there's any soul here that's turned to Christ, you prayed that prayer, you meant it with all your heart, will you just look at me quickly into my eyes? I will not embarrass you. It's a confession of your faith that you meant what you prayed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.